Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to a brand new edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast on the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions. And right now I'm going to be bringing you the latest and greatest going on around the world of Hollywood. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. Hope everyone enjoyed college football, the NFL this past weekend. It finally kicked off. Sports is finally in gear, even with everything going on with the coronavirus pandemic. So hopefully everybody enjoyed that. Enjoyed whatever else you did during this fine weekend. Some things I want to talk about right off the bat that happened this weekend and also on Friday. I'm going to be getting into some of the Venice Film Festival Awards as a festival season kicks off and so does it this crazy award season that will be. I'm also going to be talking about Candyman being delayed to next year and a whole lot more. But as I usually do and because theaters are opening back up here in the United States, I'm going to be recapping this weekend's box office. So to start off with the box office recap, this weekend there was some controversy related to the last two weekends with Tenet specifically and Warner Brothers and the Broken Hearts Gallery and Sony Pictures, which delivered its film finally this past weekend on September 11th. And there was a lot of of, uh, going back and forth. There was a report from Variety that talked about apparently Warner Brothers and Sony were holding back a lot of their box office receipts from this weekend and not really kind of doing a daily delivery on Friday and Saturday of the daily box office counts, which we would usually get. But because of the coronavirus pandemic, things are kind of changing under our feet. And instead of showing it daily during these last few days, they decided to hold off and give the total amount for the press, for studios, which look to these box office scores and look at the daily look, uh, the daily numbers to kind of gauge what the market is looking like so other studios can make decisions on what they want to do with their films. And it seemed like Warner Brothers and Sony didn't really want to share the information. And it, at first from the reports, it seems like the studios were okay with that. And they decided to give Warner Brothers a little bit of a week off to say, you know what, you're reassembling. You're the first studio to be out of the gate with the tenant with a brand new movie. So we'll cut you a little bit of slack. But for the second weekend, it seemed like the studios wanted a little bit more transparency. And it seemed like they didn't get that. And so because of it, the reports found out and we have found out that the numbers that tenant were was being reported on in which it made $20 million last weekend when it came out here first in the United States, that the $20 million wasn't really what it made in its four-day week or even three-day weekend. And because of the four-day week accounted for Labor Day as well, it wasn't during that leg of the stretch. It was everything conglomerated, like a lot of people have been suspecting, from its 11-day total, including the Canada premiere, which happened a week prior to the Labor Day weekend. And you also had a few early access screenings going on as well for the film in the days prior to its domestic unveiling on Thursday, September 3rd. So there was a lot of differing reports coming out, and now it seems like the domestic box office is off to a shakier start than a lot of people suspected it to be. But when we look at the domestic box office this weekend, it made, Tenet itself made $6.7 million, which if you look at the the percentage from week to week, it's only a 29% drop, which isn't honestly all that bad. That is a decent drop, especially when we talk 
about the theaters here in the United States that are only 65 to 75% open around the country, it's not that bad. It made $29.5 million domestically overall. It has $177 million internationally and $207 million worldwide. And then to go off the score of what it made last weekend, it officially made... <clears throat> million from Friday to Sunday. So there's a lot of things to take away from these numbers. There's positives and there's negatives. To get the negatives out first, when you look at the domestic launch, it's not a good score. It's not good numbers and it reveals that around the rest of the country, or not even the country rather, but the rest of the world, the United States is still lagging behind and theaters are just the latest example of that, in which people aren't, even with all the safety protocols implemented, people just aren't ready, it seems like, to really be going back into the theaters in this particular moment in time. They are still kind of of unsure if people are really, if people should be going out or not. And it really gives a glaring edge that maybe this wasn't the best move, that maybe this wasn't the best idea, that maybe at least here in the United States, theaters should have held off for a little bit longer. And again, as Warner Brothers said, and as I'm going to say, and I think a lot of others, is that it's really going to be about the next few weeks, the next month of where this really goes. But domestically, that's not a great start. And the fact that Warner Brothers really just wanted to conglomerate the opening weekend here domestically together and there was all these reports coming out that really kind of had to go in and see the numbers and divide it up for where it all was statistically 9.4 million dollars again from friday the september 4th excuse me to sunday september 6th is not a good score at all and it's not a good number to really open back up large again you wanted to open up 10 12 million dollars you wanted to open up double digits in that realm of possibility it didn't make the 11.2 million dollars that a lot of people thought it didn't make 20 million dollars throughout that weekend that a lot of people suspected again it was that 11 day total from the, the canadian opening to the early screenings and everything that everything that it made in its labor day weekend so the fact that warner brothers had to kind of hide that a little bit that's not the best look for them right now. But on the positive side of everything, even though the United States is still lagging in a lot of things, worldwide, it's you can see the box office coming back to life slowly but surely, and Tenet is a big part of that. And again, is the other side of the coin for why Warner Brothers decided to do the rollout that it actually did, and for the reason why that the United States was one of the last or middling places to get the film Whereas the UK and uh, Germany and a few other countries got the, the the worldwide release of Tenet first, and you're seeing why. Again, it's made $177 million internationally and $207 million worldwide. It's a good total. It's it's made. It hasn't made back its budget. It still needs to make between $400 to $500 million to go from to get out of the red into the black and be a viably financial success for Warner Brothers in each time period. So it's still got legs to go and it still has ways to go before getting there yet when you look at 207 million dollars it's made back at least its production budget in the sense of when initially this film was going into shooting it had around a 200 to 210 million dollar 
production budget. So it had a big boost in its international sales, and you're clearly seeing it here. So while the United States is lagging, <clears throat> excuse me, you definitely can see why internationally, Tenet is starting to roll out really, really well. You saw China was a main player for the for the release of Christopher Nolan's Tenet. You can see it still was number one. The UK was number three. United States was number two. But again, it's it's about the legs and what it can do in a, in a month. And if Tenet can remake back its budget and become a viable financial success, then we're going to see that happen hopefully sooner rather than later. Yet, I think when we look at the storylines going ahead and I think a lot of people are going to be open up in arms and saying well this isn't good for the United States there's a reason now why Warner Brothers decided to move Wonder Woman 84 to December rather than October but I think it's actually correlating for what Warner Brothers wanted to do in which they wanted to give Tenant the month of October to really kind of ride this wave out and see what kind of legs it could really have and not be eaten up by another film from the same studio. And one of the main things when we look at the individual listings for Tenet, you look at the where it had its best financial successes in terms of inside the country, what counties. Orange County in Los Angeles, or not Los Angeles, but California, was really, really big this weekend. And it was the highest per theater average and it was the highest listing in theaters that had huge successes. There was one in Jersey that had a big success as well. So you're also seeing that the two places where known films are really, really successful in the United States are the two biggest markets in terms of theater going and theater grosses in New York and Los Angeles. And those are still closed as of right now. So reports are still indicating that tenant is going, or not tenant rather, but the New York LA markets will be open by late September, early October. And you're, you're starting to see that influx a little bit in other counties in the greater California area. Then you got to think at some point that the two biggest areas that Nolan has huge success in the United States will be some kind of a boost in the regions if they do open back up again sooner rather than later. And they can help add to the totals of what has become a very healthy, somewhat healthy market internationally. And again, we're seeing it in the UK, even in China. And even though Tenet isn't as huge in China as maybe something like the 800, it's a contribution that is just showing that some markets are just doing better than others. Again, the United States is not doing well, and the numbers really have shown it. So again, this is it's good news, but there is some bad news to it as well. And I think, again, these next few weeks are going to be telling for what happens. And if you want some good news within the the, the domestic box office for Tenet, it's that percentage drop. And we always look at that drop even without the coronavirus pandemic. If this was a normal weekend, whether it's in the summer movie season or now we are in the fall movie season, we always look at what is happens in the opening weekend, which you have the big blockbusters make big money on its opening weekend. But for a lot of box office prognosticators, it's always about what is the second and third weekend drop? What are the legs going to look like? And again, even though this is comparing apples to oranges, really, because these are different times, different situations, and we don't have anything to back up these numbers in terms of Tenet with its history because nothing like this has ever happened before. 
you always look at that percentage. If it's a below 50% and it, it's like 60, 70, then that is a huge drop. That's not good. And in normal times, anything above 50%, that's a really good percentage. That's where you want to be because it doesn't have a big drop. And there are people that are going back consistently in the weeks following and aren't just following the hype of, of opening weekend. So at least with even though it's from 9.6 million from its Friday to Sunday Labor Day weekend to this weekend is 6.7, you might say that and be like, well, that's that's not good. And overall, it's not good. But when you look at that percentage drop, that's actually a good sign at least that people aren't just going for the opening weekend in which Tenet was marketing. Theaters are back open. This is the, the film to go back and see an opening weekend and people just went last weekend to go see it and then they just forgot about it this, this past weekend and the percentage drop was great. It wasn't that. People still went to the theaters to see this. So that, that percentage drop is the, I think, the best positive for the domestic box office moving forward right now that you can hang on that little thread. And you can also hang on the positive for the international markets as well for the box office of Christopher Nolan's Tenant. And then moving on to other box office news that happened, newcomer Broken Hearts Gallery, which was produced by Selena Gomez, made $1.1 million this weekend. Again, not nothing great, especially here for the United States, but I think this isn't, again, a $200 million film like Tenant. And this is only, I think, an, an $8 million film where Sony might have bought it for $8 million. So they don't need as much money for this. So this could be something where they market it for younger females, younger adults to go see if they feel safe about going to the theaters. And if they go, they go and, and they get some kind of money and they hit the demographic that they wanted to hit with this film. And then New Mutants added $2 million and Unhinged has, is having some good legs and made $1.5 million this past weekend. So again, it's not really knocking a lot of people's socks off the box office, but I think, again, it's baby steps that are being made. And I think internationally, you're really seeing the boom happen in theaters. People are going back. They feel safe. There's not a lot of cases. And unfortunately, with the United States, it seems like, at least with movie theaters, they can add it onto the list, unfortunately, of things that are lagging behind in the United States that the world is beating them out on right now. What do you guys think about these box office numbers for Tenant for the weekend? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. Moving on now to some news regarding a delayed film that is being moved to 2021, and that is the Nia DaCosta film, Candyman. Candyman will be heading to a determined date for next year. It was originally set for May of 2020, but instead it was moved, or rather not May, but June of this year, and then it was moved to October because of the COVID pandemic, and now it will be moved to Again, an unknown date for some time. It was produced by Jordan Peele. It's going to be a spiritual sequel to the 1992 hit with starring Todd Phillips. So this is a film that I was very much looking forward to, especially after hearing the news that Nia DaCosta was going to be the director for Captain Marvel 2. I think this is going to be an interesting film to look at. It reminds me very much of, I think, especially now where we're dealing with a lot of race divide. This could be a very 
get out scenario where there's a lot of racial horror going on in this film. And, and so I think it really interests me. And again, I want to see what Nia DaCosta does. And I'm sad that it's moving out of the year, but I think for Universal, I think they saw the writings on the wall for themselves maybe that they didn't like the tenant box office that was coming about. They didn't like that maybe things won't get better by middle of October for November, December that they said, you know what, let's cut our losses right now. Let's move to 2021 for what date they will get for that year. It's really hard to think about what they're going to have. There's already so many films that are out even beginning in January to the end of the year. The summertime is packed. The springtime is packed. There's so many major blockbusters that will be coming out every single week of 2021 as of right now. So where Candyman falls to, it's anyone's guess at this particular moment in time. But for right now, I think with Candyman, it, it was a smart move by Universal. I understand it. What have I liked to see it on in October? Yes, but it's understandable. Universal saying, you know what, let's, let's not do this. And let's just save it all for 2021. What do you guys think about this news that the Nia DaCosta directed Candyman is moving to October, or not October rather, but from October to 2021? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. Moving on from the Nia DaCosta directed Candyman to the Venice Film Festival and the film festival kicked off this COVID festival season that we have going on right now and with festival season marks the really kind of beginning of this year's award season which will be a topsy-turvy one at best where it it won't end until April and there's going to be so many twists and turns that come about it and we finally have our first inclinations of what could be some major contenders moving forward. And the Venice Film Festival had a lot of good films coming out of it that even though it was very slimmed down, they still had a lot of great films that came out from Venice. And again, hats off to them. From what I've heard about reports, they pulled it off beautifully. This was the first major film festival to put on some kind of show, to put on screens and to have people there at the film festival, albeit with COVID regulations, social distancing, there weren't allowed to be any press there. There was barely any kind of red carpets. If there were, it was only just for a few films here and there. There were a lot of online Q&As that occurred at the, film, at the film festival. So this is something that it sounds like from the last two weeks, there have been no reports and hopefully there won't be. And that this is a good way of moving forward if COVID is going to stick around for a while, that this could be a blueprint moving forward. And Toronto is also kind of implementing its own thing as well, where it's a mixture, which is is going on right now of a online festival and an actual physical festival for some of the screening. So it seems like right now everything is going very well after having to cancel the Cannes Film Festival, Telluride, the, the Tribeca Film Festival. This is nice to kind of see that we're able to still kind of get these festivals moving forward and that it'll, it'll continue with the New York Film Festival. But the the big stuff coming out of it is, of course, the films that are being reviewed and which ones could be potential awards contenders. And even though, again, the festival itself was slimmed down from the roster, which usually, especially for somewhere like a Toronto and a Venice, 
there's about over 100 films that premiere on those red carpets. And because of the pandemic, it's been slimmed down. I, I don't know how many Venice had, but I know Toronto, the TIFF Film Festival, had about 50 films that were on their lineup that are being broadcasted and screened for many people. And it seemed like in Venice, even though it was a limited uh, selection, there were still some major winners that could potentially have a lot of award season buzz moving down the next few months. And a few of them were One Night in Miami, there was Nomadland, and uh, Pieces of a Woman, and a, a few others as well. But the biggest one that had probably the biggest buzz out of them all was Nomadland, and that went on to win the major prize at the Venice Film Festival, and that is The Golden Lion. And it went to Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao, and starring Francis McDermott, who I think you're gonna be hearing a lot about over the next few months for myself and many others who follow and track Oscar season and the awards path that many films will be going on starting this week or last the last two weeks and continuing with TIFF this weekend. And The Golden Lion did go to No Man Land and it, Chloe Zhao made history with this win in which she is the first female director to take this prize since Sofia Coppola won it in 2010 for her film Somewhere. And Zhao is the first woman of color to be handed the trophy since Mirana in 2001. So a lot of history being made in just that one win. And I think Chloe Zhao is somebody who is going to have a major breakthrough from this film and of course for her Marvel Studios film Eternals, which was supposed to come out on November 6th, which I think if everything was right and everything was good in the world right now, I think Chloe Zhao could have been on her way to really getting some major, major serious buzz because if Eternals was a great success and this film came out and still was as big and as buzzy as it is right now, I think she would be well on her way to securing a nomination and potentially winning because you go from an indie film to a big blockbuster, people will remember your name. And so even though I think people will, and if Eternals does come out in 2021 and in February, that could still very much happen just a few months apart than what we actually thought could potentially happen with her. So for Chloe Zhao, this could be the start of a beautiful, beautiful surge in her career and becoming one of the, the most well-known directors in the game right now. And for Frances McDermott, who won two to three years ago for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, she looks like she's vying for her potential third win at the Academy Awards. So a lot coming out of this film, and it is, is one of the top contenders as of right now moving forward with Oscar season. And when you come with the with festival season, there are a lot of films that just kind of jump out at you that you didn't see or even hear about when you started off the year, when you list off your most anticipated films of the year, or even when you're going to the Sundance Film Festival or even Cannes on a, on a normal year during the summertime, you don't really hear about some of these films. And the beautiful thing about festival season is that when you have these films come out, some of them just, again, jump right at you and surprise you in so many incredible ways. And one of the films that really did that was The Pieces of a Woman, which sounds like it is one of the best films of the year, one of the most tragic films that has been witnessed in the last few years from what I've heard about it. And it, it is all led 
by the one and only Vanessa Kirby, who won the Best Actress Prize at the Venice Film Festival for Pieces of a Woman. It is actually her first actual major acting role since, well, overall, really, this is her first major one because when you think of Vanessa Kirby, you think about Mission Impossible, you think about her role in Hobbs and Shaw, even The Crown, she's not the main leading lady in those projects. She's the supporting role in every single one of them. So for her to really come out and knock it out of the park in her first major, major role as a leading lady is absolutely incredible. So She's one that I think is going to jump up on a lot of people's radar for Best Actress. And again, that's the beauty of it, where you see these performances, you see these movies that you knew nothing about, and they jump at you. It just kind of totally rewires your brain on the perspective of how you see this year's award season, of how you really see this year unfolding for film, and something where you had no idea anything about could be your favorite film of the entire year. So that's the beauty of something like a Venice Film Festival, a TIFF, a Telluride, a New York Film Festival, a Cannes Film Festival, which of course last year started the voyage that was to be the Parasite dominating the Academy Awards this past February. So this is just one of the beautiful things about it. So congratulations to Nomadland for winning, to Vanessa Kirby for winning Best Actress, and they are the two to look forward to coming out of the Venice Film Festival and now going into into TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, New York Film Festival, to see how these films keep that buzz going. And especially in a year where, again, this isn't the normal kind of award season where you just really have the festival buzz and then you have a few other films that are coming from October, November, December. You ha- you're going to have films that are going to be coming out in January and February that people don't, might not know about. And some of the, this buzz that we have right now, studios who buy these festival films might need to pick up that buzz once again come December and January so you're ready to go for when the nominations are announced in March. So this is going to be one of the leg year award seasons to happen in a long, long time. And I'm excited for it. I know a lot of people are excited about it. And I think for a lot of awards prognosticators like myself, even though it's everything is different this year with COVID, and again, it seems like Venice did a lot of great things with that festival. Everything, knock on wood or knock whatever you want to knock on, went off without a hitch. Same thing seems like it's going on at TIFF right now. And it seems like at least we had some kind of normalcy going on in these last few weeks of talking about these incredible films that are coming out that nobody really expected. Maybe some did and really kind of wow people and change their minds on some of their favorites and put some of these films on their best of 2020. What do you guys think about these awards for the Venice Film Festival? Let me know and leave your thoughts below. And then moving on now to the world of DC. And this past weekend was the second part of the DC fandom, which has been an incredible success for Warner Brothers, for DC. And this weekend, it wasn't as, I think, watched or as as looked at as the Hall of Heroes was on August 22nd because we had all the panels come out, we had all the major announcements happen, and this past weekend was more about kind of exploring the TV side, hearing announcements and cast, talk about the TV shows from the CW-verse, and then of course you had a lot of stuff with the comic books and video games again, and so there wasn't a whole lot focused on panels and surprises, but... We actually did get some more information from a lot of these different panels and a lot more stuff from the Suicide Squad, Batman, 
and some things from Black Adam as well, but nothing major as much as it was for the Holly Heroes, but some really cool, interesting tidbits. And one of the the films that did make some headlines this weekend from a Q&A with Annie Muschietti and Barbara Muschietti from The Flash was actually very, very interesting in some of the details that they expanded on when talking about what this film will entail and actually how big in scope it really is going to be. And these are some details that come right now from Andy Muschietti when he was talking at one of the panels at the Fandom this weekend. And he was really talking about the tone and where the Flash is really going to go and the feeling of it. And is it going to be dark? Is it going to be funny? Is it going to be something in between? And this is what he had to say about it. My Flash is not going to be light or dark in tone. It's going to have everything. If you saw my previous movies like It and It 2, you'll know what I like to put in everything. So what you'll see in Flash is very deep emotional story, but it's also going to be very funny, hopefully, and a great epic adventure at the same time, and also terrifying sometimes. And kind of like James Wan, Andy Muschietti does come from the horror landscape, and there were some moments in Aquaman that James Wan added his horror talents as a director to that film. And you clearly saw it when he, Aquaman was going through that trench sequence and you saw these terrifying looking sea creatures. And it seems like Andy Muschietti is going to do the same thing that he learned from It and It too, and put that in some of the Flash as well. So that'll be very interesting to see. But it makes total sense what Andy Muschietti is saying with the tone that he's looking for. Because I think think when you look at the the it films they definitely have different vibes going on especially in that first it which i think is a superior film from the second part but i still enjoyed and, and thought the second part was still a good movie but the first part was just an incredible film in which it was a mixture of horror but it felt like a steven spielberg film with the camaraderie with the kids and going on this adventure against the supernatural with a lot of horror elements in there like a Stranger Things or a grown-up kind of E.T. or Close Encounters, that it felt like that. So if Andy Muschietti can really kind of translate those tones from especially that first It movie into The Flash, I think that is a really good recipe. And I think Muschietti can deliver something really, really cool here. He can deliver something on a massive front, on an epic front. And his wife, Barbara Muschietti, who is a producer on a lot of his films, including The Flash, talked about kind of that scope that epic feeling that will be have in the Flash film. And this is what she had to say. But I, what I will tell you is that it's a ride. It's going to be fun, exciting, and there are a lot of DC characters in it. Flash is the superhero of this film because he is the bridge between all these characters and timelines. And in a way, it restarts everything and it doesn't forget anything. So that is, I think, the bigger quote coming from the two of them, where Andy Muschietti has an idea for where he wants to take this film creatively, but Barbara Muschietti is looking at it, I think, from a bigger picture, which is what a lot of people want to know about the DC universe. And for a long, long time, I think, a lot of people have always pointed to if Warner Brothers DC really wanted to kind of push the reset button on the DC universe in which they can recast Batman, Superman, if they don't want Henry Cavill or Ben Affleck back, then Flashpoint, the Flash movie, could be the best way to do that. And that seems to be the direction that this film is taking in which it's going to be kind of the DC's version of kind of Civil War in the sense that it's more than just a Captain America film. It's a Avengers type of scope film that has the intimacy story of a Captain America, and that sounds like what The Flash is gonna be. We hear that, you know, Michael Keaton coming back, Ben Affleck 
even somebody who didn't want to be Batman anymore is coming back to play this role for this film. Even everything going on with Ray Fisher and Warner Brothers, it sounds like Warner Brothers wants Ray Fisher to reprise Cyborg in this film. Does that mean we get Aquaman, Wonder Woman back? What does this mean? So I think when we heard that Walter Hamada and the creative heads over at DC talk about this on the DC Fandom Multiverse panel, it seems like the multiverse was on their mind for what they wanted to do going forward in which Joker, the the Todd Phillips film, and the Robert Pattinson Batman are all going to be different Earths, and that could all be really introduced from the Flash's movie. So I think DC has an idea for where they want to go, what they want to do. And if they do the Flash the right way, I think it could spell some really good things moving forward for the DC universe. But again, it's going to come down to execution. And that's why I think from a bigger picture, Barbara Machete's comments are big. But when you look at, again, perspective, when you look at the vision, Andy Machete has an idea for where he wants to go with this film. And if all everything executes correctly, this could be a major game changer, not just for the DC universe, but for comic book films in general so this is going to be really really exciting i'm excited to see where this film goes and it seems like in 2022 both marvel and dc for all the fanboys that love the the camaraderie and the the back and forth marvel could be exploring a lot of the multiverse along with the dc as well so a lot of multiverse could be introduced in the comic book world in 2022 so again for both sides and for myself who loves marvel and dc a lot to look forward to and i think with andy muschetti on for directing the flash it gives me a lot of confidence moving forward that something really good can come out of this movie and we could be in for a really fun ride with this film what do you guys think about the details regarding the flash film let me know and leave your thoughts and then moving on to some netflix news that came out over the weekend the first thing that i want to talk about coming from netflix was the surprise trailer that debuted during a Sunday Night Football commercial on NBC, where it was the world premiere of the first trailer for Aaron Sorkin's new film, The Trial of the Chicago 7, which is premiering on Netflix. No date has been announced except for coming out in October. And this is a film that has been one of my most anticipated in terms of being an awards prognosticator, looking forward to awards season. This has been on the top of my list. This is one that I think is going to be a heavy, heavy contender because of the cast that is in front and the names that are behind the camera, especially in writer-director Aaron Sorkin. And this trailer is everything I wanted it to be and more. This is exactly what I'm looking forward to. If you've seen A Few Good Men, which was written by Aaron Sorkin, if you know the writing of Aaron Sorkin, then you know that this could be something that is just incredible. I mean, you look at the cast, Sasha Baron Cohen, who I said in a tweet last night, we all know Sasha Baron Cohen as a comedian. He's a great comedian. But I think this is going to be the film that's that's going to be the coming out party that shows how well-rounded of an actor Sasha Baron Cohen can be. Because he's shown spurts of that throughout. He shown it in films like Hugo or even Les Mis a little bit or he's done it in a show like The Spy where he earned really good reviews in which I think he came out last year so he's shown throughout his career that he can be serious as well I think this is really going to break out and showcase the depth that Sasha Baron Cohen can go in and he'll be one of the main names in the best actor category which can you would you have been able to say that five years ago for Sasha Baron Cohen so 
there's a reason Aaron Sorkin wanted him for this film, and it wasn't because of his of, of his comedic chops. So I think he's the one to really look forward to. You have Jeremy Strong, you have Eddie Redmayne, you have Mark Rylance, you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Yaya Matul-Mateen II, who was incredible in Watchmen. It's just an impeccable cast, and... There's going to be a lot of award nominations to go out for this film. The dialogue seems incredible and best in Aaron Sorkin fashion. But and the big thing I think going for this film, the, if there's a question mark for it, is how has Aaron Sorkin's directing skills evolved since his first feature with Molly's Game with Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba? Because that was a really good film, and I think he did a great job in his direction. It wasn't anything that wowed anybody, but for a first directorial debut with a script of his own, it was still really good. He directed the hell out of the picture. I thought he showcased great acting chops with Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba, and between the, the editing styles and how he was able to command the picture, he did a good job. So to see him elevate that to another level this time around, I think will be very, very interesting in, in what he carries with this film, especially knowing that it's now on Netflix. So this was going to potentially be, whether it was a studio or a Netflix film, it's going to be interesting to see. So that's the one thing I'm really curious to see what his skills as a director has evolved from in his second feature film. But again, this is one that I'm looking forward to in October. It's again, going to be a heavy awards contender if all the cards fall onto the table. So this is one to definitely keep your eyes on and I think could make a lot of noise in October. And then, excuse me, the next thing that came from Netflix yesterday was the first poster and release date announcement for the Ryan Murphy directed The Prom, which is based off of the Broadway hit from 2018, which showcases these three Broadway aficionados go to the small town in Indiana and try to help a girl who's trying to ask out her girlfriend who is in the closet at this moment because this town is conservative and wants to ask her closeted girlfriend to the prom. And so some things ensue and it, it's really well regarded in its music. I love the music for this film. And for Ryan Murphy to direct this, it makes total sense. And the release date for it makes total sense as well, which is coming out on December 11th or December 17th, actually, if I'm remembering that correctly. And this is a film that it's it's the perfect release date for the movie. I mean, when you come out with a winter musical, like we saw with, again, Greatest Showman, with Les Mis, it is something that makes a whole lot of sense for this movie to to do and again when we look at things during this this year that we're looking forward to that maybe isn't going to be on the the big screen if you're looking for the next best thing at this moment Netflix offers that and the release date is December 11th so when you're looking for a, a winter musical this could be it and I know we have West Side Story coming out and I still build that in terms of again big screen musical that you want to go to the theater for West Side Story could deliver that we haven't seen Steven Spielberg do something like that but with The Prom, if you're looking for something where it's at home and you're watching, this could be it for you. And when you look at this cast, I mean, I'm excited for what West Side Story has to do, but they don't have the cast that Ryan Murphy has for The Prom. I mean, you have the dame herself, the queen, Meryl Streep will be in this, James Corden will be in it, Nicole Kidman, Keegan-Michael Key, Andrew Reynolds, Ariana DeBois, who is going to have a very interesting end of 2020 after being in 
Hamilton as the bullet, and she will be in West Side Story playing Rhea. She will be all over the place, and for her to be in the prom, it's going to be very exciting. So a great list of people that are part of it, Carrie Washington as well. So this could be something that is really big for Netflix and gets kind of the buzz going for it towards the end of the year. And again, for Ryan Murphy, I think this is going to be an interesting challenge for him because we all know him to be the great showrunner that he is. There's no denying that he can create great television from Glee to American Horror Story, American Crime Story. He knows what he wants to do, but when it comes to directing, I haven't he hasn't directed something in a long time and he doesn't have a great track record with his directing. So for him to come in and do this under his major Netflix deal, I think it's going to be very interesting. I Even though I haven't seen him direct in a long time, this is right up his alley. And if anything, when we're talking about awards, I know Jason, who he's been on this show a few times, especially last year during award season, and I'll make sure to have him on over the next few months when award season does start to kick up again. And But he was talking about how he thought that maybe this could be a big award season contender. And again, I know it has Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman. It has a, a plethora of of phenomenal actors and actresses. But if there's any kind of awards contention that this really does has, it's not really in the in the Oscars. It's going to be in, at the Golden Globe, specifically Best Musical Comedy, Best Actors in a Musical and Comedy. That section at the Golden Globes, I think this is as great as a lot of people are anticipating it to be, then it, I think it'll have major success there. The big thing now is what are we going to see in the trailer? Because I think a trailer for this film will tell all, really, and not tell everything for the plot, but showcase what we can expect in a big musical like this because for Netflix they've also never really had a big big musical spectacle like this before and make no mistake when you see that poster they're going to deliver on spectacle you can just see it on the teaser poster itself so this is going to be I think one of Netflix's first major big films to come out in terms of when we have films like A Red Notice or even that Russo Brothers film with Ryan Gosling that is coming out that what are we going to get with this film is something big and spectacle something that you could see in the movies but you can actually see in your home and if the box office isn't good if theaters are still somewhat iffy by September which hopefully they're not but if they are then if people don't want to go see a West Side Story in the theaters or even if it does still come out during that time period then people might be still interested in in staying at home and this could be the best option for them to do it with so a lot of things to look forward to with the prom the poster is glitzy it's glamorous it's got everything I think that a lot of people who like the prom who love Broadway will want in this film and again when I talked about it with Hamilton in July even though this isn't a lie to shot taped a recording of something that is on Broadway and doesn't have those Broadway elements. But again, for a musical, for something that is based off of a Broadway musical, it's got all the likings for people that are musical aficionados, Broadway aficionados, people that are craving for that kind of live theater, that theater element, and haven't gotten it since the beginning of the year and will not get it for at least another few months into next year sometime, then this could be the next thing that they can see 
it can really bring a lot of attention to, again, Netflix and to that film. So I think there's a lot of interest that to go around for The Prom and could be a really big, impactful film for many, many different reasons. I think the next thing will be the trailer, and I think the trailer will blow people's socks off, and I think will be a lot of buzz around that film. What do you guys think about the release date for The Prom and the poster, along with the trailer for Aaron Sorkin's latest, The Trial? of the Chicago 7. Let me know and leave your thoughts. And the last thing that I want to talk about on the Sampa Cell podcast today is the major news that came out this morning from Deadline, and that is that it seems like Ant-Man 3, according to reports from Deadline, they have found their next villain in the form of Jonathan Majors, in who he will be playing Kang the Conqueror from the Marvel Comics. And I'm somebody who... I don't know a whole lot about the Marvel comics, the lore of Marvel comics, but, and I know there are probably a lot more people that are listening to me that do, so please inform me, let me know in the comments who Kang is, and and let our audience know as well, but from what I know from Kang the Conqueror is that he is this major villain that time travels from different heroes' past and future, and is a major, major thorn in the side of our Marvel characters, and he has been somebody that I've heard a lot about over the years that could be a major, major villain in the MCU if Kevin Feige ever so chooses to include him in the MCU. And it seems like that is now the case. And for Jonathan Majors, it is a well-deserved casting hire if this does turn out to be true. And again, Marvel Studios has not commented. This is just coming from reports from Deadline, which are, are pretty reliable from a major trade like that. So I have no doubt that Jonathan Majors has been casted. And if that does turn out to be the truth, then bravo to him because he is somebody who, like Florence Pugh last year, is having one hell of a 2020 in terms of a professional career and in which the case that he was in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods he had a really memorable turn in that film and he is the star of the hit HBO show Lovecraft Country right now so he's on the airways right now people recognize his face people love him it sounds like and he is somebody that is again having a great year he really came out of the thorns from The Last Man in San Francisco in 2019 so He's been a name that floats around for a little bit, and it sounds like from reports that Kang the Conqueror is going to be a major force going forward in the MCU, kind of like what Thanos and what Loki were. So maybe Kang turns up in Ant-Man 3 and then becomes maybe the main villain of the next Avengers film or the next team-up movie in the MCU going forward. And I think it would be very interesting if Ant-Man 3 really kind of became a focal point for the MCU in terms of being one of those next big films that kind of helps launch off what we could be getting in these next set of films that leads up to maybe another Avengers Endgame or something along those lines. And the Ant-Man films, really when you look at Endgame, play a crucial role in how the outcome of that film and the outcome of that 10-year journey really plays out. So Ant-Man has become a vital part of the franchise. And for Jonathan Majors, I mean, again, to be a part of the biggest franchise in the industry right now is incredible. And I think he deserves it. I can't wait to see what he does with this character. And I'm excited that hopefully this is the start of a beautiful relationship, as it said in Casablanca, between Jonathan Majors and Marvel Studios. So hopefully this is the beginning to that beautiful relationship. And what do you guys think about the casting of Jonathan Majors in Ant-Man 3, if it does does turn out to be true? Again, there has been no comment yet from Marvel Studios or Disney, but 
It is coming, this report, from Deadline Hollywood. What do you guys think about it? Let me know and leave your thoughts. But guys, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sam Bissell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out my channel for more content. You can check me out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, SoundCloud, and much more. Also, make sure to tune in onto the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, and be sure to check out the other amazing shows that are on there, such as You Mad Bro, the number one source to see what the internet is pissed off about on a weekly basis. Also, check out goal-driven professionals geared toward improving client relations, return on investment, and customer acquisition costs for independent businesses and services. Also, check out The Daily Grind, a weekly motivational podcast with Kelly Johnson giving you everyday tips and key takeaways on reaching your goals. And also, you can check out these other cool shows on the podcast solutions, such as Wrestle Addict Radio, Fretzelmania Podcast, and Midnight Showing. You can check these out and so much more on the website, ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com, also on Facebook and Twitter at Real Ambiguous. And if you want to check out Canopy Treehouse, use the coupon code AMBIGUOUS. Also, when you get a chance after you're done checking out the Ambiguous Podcast Solutions on their social media accounts, make sure to follow me on social media when you get a chance. You can find me on Twitter at Basil Samuel. That's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. Again, that's B-U-S-S-E-L-L-S-A-M-U-E-L. And on Facebook at Sam Basel. Thank you guys again so much, and until next time, keep on screening.